All right. Can you hear me? You might want to un unmute your mic. Can you hear me? You should have a uh, mic icon down towards the left. And if it's muted, you won't be able to, I won't be able to hear you. You need to unmute that. All right. Can you hear me now? Awesome. Yes, I can. Very good. Awesome. All right. We're going to get this started. Uh, we're going to be doing this. This is being recorded for posterity. And it's going to go up after I get go through the painstaking process of editing. It will be up on A Pagan Perspective, capital A, on YouTube. And it is my privilege to have tonight for this interview, author, priest, elder, man who's been a part of the community for a very long time. It is my pleasure to have uh, Alaric Albertson here tonight. Welcome, Alaric. All right, thank you. Awesome. And just for, for to, to give you guys an, an idea of of uh, you know the the background that Alaric has, he's got three books, and they are "To Walk a Pagan Path: Practical Spirituality for Every Day," "Travels Through Middle Earth: The Path of a Saxon Pagan," a handbook of sorcery and magic, word working, runecraft, divination, and wart cunning. So that's a good set of books to have under under your uh belt there and we're going to kind of go over the gamut of a little bit of everything um what i normally do with with my interviews is i kind of like to go you know back in people's evolution and one of the things that i kind of want to uh start out the interview with is what was your spiritual upbringing how were you how was it for you as a kid with your family and things growing up in the world, you know, as, you know, your spiritual life? Wow, that's broad. Um, Some people have broad backgrounds. So that's why, uh, you know, I put that like that. Well, I, I, mean, I do think it makes a difference on who we are now. We, we like to think that, oh, we're just pagan, but our life experiences can very often shape our paganism. And just over the years, I realized that because of my background, I do have certain attitudes that, you know, I need to be aware of that. Uh, I was raised Presbyterian. And in the sense of I was sent to the Presbyterian church. Um, uh, this is kind of a little funny story. This is why this is when I first realized how much our backgrounds can influence us. Uh, about 15 years ago, I belonged to uh, a druidic group in Pennsylvania. And we got into a discussion, which became kind of a heated discussion on what constituted a member, how we defined what a member was of the group. And I was in the, the corner of people who said, hey, you paid your membership dues, you're in. Uh, to, to be a part of this group, it costs like $60 a year, which isn't going to break anybody, but in, mm -hmm. in the pagan world, that's kind of hefty to belong to, to a local group. And uh, 
the opposing team, so to speak, there are other people who are like, oh, no, no, we have to have all these requirements for the members and they have to, uh, to be a member, you have to attend so many of our public rituals, and things like that. Um, and, you know, they would say, oh, well, what, if we just have a membership fee, people could bring in their friends and they could take over our group. I'm thinking, you know, at 60 bucks a vote, that's going to cost a lot to take over a pagan mm -hmm. group. When in the real world, I can start another one over here for free. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't think it that really held up much. But what really hit me was when one woman said, "No, we have to have a requirement on how many rituals they attend every year. It's just like the mass requirement." Oh yes. And all of a sudden, I realized we were not pagans arguing about paganism. We were Protestants and Catholics trying to decide whether this was going to be run like a Protestant group or a Catholic group. And I'm not saying that to put down the Catholic team either, because mm -hmm. I, I was just as guilty. Yeah. You know, I mean, my parents never went to church. They were Presbyterians. All Presbyterians want, you just send them money and they're happy. You're in. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that's what I thought was normal and right. So it doesn't affect you a lot how you grew up. The values that you're taught when you when you grow up, the things you you witness, your life experiences, and that was mine. I grew up as a Presbyterian. My grandparents were very devout. They went every Sunday. They were they were routinely, you know, all the time at church. My parents not so much, um, but I was, you know, the, all, me and my siblings. We were sent to Sunday school, and it meant a lot to me and. You know, when I went into my early teen years, I was involved in things like, you know, supper club and the different church activities mm -hmm. they had for youth. So that's my earliest. And to go to your point where you were talking about the, the Druid group, uh, I run a Druid order here in Springfield, and my my beginnings are with the Hangikeltria. And as a member of the Hangikeltria, there was a, a, a monthly fee which was five bucks, 60 bucks a year. But the one thing about that, for me, I think the thing that, you know, with the conversations that you had is there's distinctions of this and the fact that, you know, the for me, the requirement for a certain amount of rituals and stuff, the one thing that I think a lot of the, the larger pagan groups do that for is to test a person's resolve of how much they actually want to be a part of that tradition. You know, there are people that just come in as fly-by-nights and do that kind of thing. But then on the other side of it too, I'm one of those believers like the way that, you know, Isaac Bonowitz was back in the years that, you know, we, I still think we need paid clergy because we do a lot of things for people. And, uh, you know, it's like, we don't need to be like the mega churches, but it, it's an exchange of energy. There's a lot of things that we do but I think the difference between a member and the other side of it is a member is just somebody who is, you know, just has the ability to be a part of the organization. But then once you start getting into requirements for rituals and all these other things, I think that could be kind of construed about for those that would have the possibility that at some point they would want to uh, initiate or become a more deeper part of that tradition, you know, ADF, OBOD, whatever it is. So it's like, I can understand where you're coming from uh, with that. And 
So it's like, I just feel like making a requirement like that, a, a blanket requirement like that is, uh, I, I really don't like that because you don't know what a person's situation is. Yeah. If you make one rule, you're inevitably, you're going to run into people who, through no fault of their own, because they've had some life change or something, they can't get to these rituals. Yeah, that's true. They still want to be a part of the group. They still want to feel a belonging. And just casting somebody aside because you made up this stupid rule, I just I just find that offensive myself. And, uh, you know, the one thing I, I think about that is the idea that if somebody is only able to make it, I mean, you know, some people are, you look at it this way. Another thing that I thought was pretty cool, some things Isaac said in years past, you have people that are dedicated clergy for the tradition. You have people that are dedicated for the tradition itself. And then you have the outer court people, the pagans that just want to show up for drummings, certain, you know, midsummer and things like that. They don't necessarily want to have all of this other stuff you know, in their situation, you know, how they are with their life. And, you know, whenever you do start putting these requirements off on people, it can turn them off from, you know, what you're trying to do. Because if you, if, if they figure that this is some kind of hard and fast kind of thing, then they're going to go, well, I'm going to find something that isn't, you know, as, as stringent as what it is. And it could put them off of what, they, because, you know, you, you don't come there for just the people and everything like that. You have an interest in, in knowing what everything is about, what Druidry is about, what whatever tradition it is. You're there not just for that, but you're there for the experience to see how that fits your spiritual life. And whenever you start throwing these little cogs into things, people don't have a spiritual life. They have a life of where they're trying to live up to whatever expectations the tradition has of you at that time. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think, you know, I wish that in, in certain instances that they could have the attitude, you know, that not everybody can be hemmed into that little box and be a little bit more flexible about things and, and that. And I appreciate you telling me that. Now, coming from that situation, let's kind of go into how did you come into uh, pagan practice, craft, things like that? What brought you into this world? Well, first I had to leave the old world. You know, um, I read the Bible and I mean, I actually read the book, did not listen to what somebody said. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found it, there were just parts in, in that were just horrific and unacceptable. And I realized I just couldn't do that anymore. But as I said, I was really into things up until then. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, I was like a, liaison person uh, with the adults who planned the Sunday school meetings. Uh, I was the kid who was there to help, you know, from the young person's point of view. But, uh, you know, when I left Christianity, there's this void in my life. And so I had been for quite some time, for well over a year, for probably close to two years, I had been looking for something. And this resulted in numerous trips to the Webster Groves Public Library, where I read about every, any book on religion that they had. Uh, and it just so happened that the way that library was arranged and set up, 
The aisle, when you went into this one aisle and walked down the aisle for the religion books, on the right-hand side were all sorts of books from all different world religions. And what I had never really paid much attention to was on the left-hand side of that same aisle were the books of what were well, the occult section, mm -hmm. or what later came to be called New Age. Um, but it just so happened one afternoon, I had gone to the library and I found a couple of more books. It was getting skimpy there. I'd read pretty much everything. <laughs> looking at oh here's a new one that came in i haven't seen before and i had got that like two books and as i turned it just kind of caught my eye it printed on the back like on the little spine thing of, of the book it said witchcraft of course a word like that's going to catch your attention yeah. it's and, a big neon sign right there to grab you yeah it was a little thing i print, but it just caught my eye and I turned around and looked back, and it was a book, uh, The Truth About Witchcraft by Hans Holzer. And it was at the occult section. And I just kind of turned, and when I looked, it also said religion. Mm -hmm. and I, huh? So, okay, well, this will be a fun read. And I just grabbed that up just for the hell of it. And it's, it's, I never really wound up doing what was in that book, but things in the book really rang true to me a lot more than anything I had been reading. So I, that's what kind of got me to pursue things. And uh, kind of by accident, I met a couple of other younger people who were already already defined themselves as witches. Uh, I was a bit resistant because it seemed odd and I was still, I was an older adolescent, but still at that age where you want to be part of the group. You want to be like, yeah. books, you know? Feel accepted and be in that. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't want to tattoo a big L on my forehead. So, <laughs> you know, I was kind of resistant to the whole thing. And then it was in July of 1971. I woke up in the middle of the night and I just felt really, really lost um, for various reasons. One, I was also going through a lot of internal pressure because I'm gay. Mm -hmm. Not because I'm gay. I mean, the gay had nothing to do with it because of the way our screwed up society reacts to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and you know, back then it was really, really awful, you know, compared yeah. to today. So, I was going through a lot of internal turmoil over that. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I just felt super down and, and lost. And then suddenly, and here I've been reading, so I, I had been reading a lot. Suddenly I had this huge feeling of just peace come over me. And I mean, I don't laugh because it sounds really weird. I did get a visual, but the visual were like these two enormous boobs. <laughs> And, you know, immediately, though, I kind of got what it was because I was like a little baby at the mother's breasts. Yeah. I, I mean, size proportion-wise, that's what it was like. Big boobs in front of me. And I just had, it wasn't like I heard words or anything, but I just heard the mother saying, come home, come on, come here. 
And so I had no clue what to do. I didn't know anything. I, I talked to some of these, a couple of these people, but I didn't really know what I was doing, but mm -hmm. I just kind of improvised. And uh, I, I had a candle in my room. So I got out of bed in my jammies and lit the candle and just knelt down. And I said, look, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, take me where I need to go. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of gave myself over to it there. And it was a decision I've never regretted. Definitely. Um, and I'll kind of relate a, a story to you and then you might be able to pick up on it. Um, for myself, uh, over the many years of my earlier life, my parents were not religious people. They never forced any kind of dogma or anything upon me. They just said, do what you want to do. Just, you know, be a good person. Don't hurt people. And, you know, we're just, we'll be behind you. You just do whatever you're going to do. And, you know, in my younger years, I had friends. I had a friend while I was in, you know, that pre-sixth grade range, you know, third, fourth, and fifth. I had a friend of mine that his father was a Methodist minister. He had a church congregation. And sometimes just to go hang out with him and stuff, I would go to his father's church and, and do these things. And it just, you know, I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel strange. I didn't feel you know, out of place in this, in this situation, even at that young age. So that was kind of like my first inclinations as a kid of what religion was about. The only, the only time, the only thing I had really known about religion was Sunday mornings, you get up and turn on the TV at six o'clock and there'd be a TV preacher there. And I would immediately click the channel and look for cartoons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that kind of came on. And then Later on in my life, I had some ups and downs and some troubles and some things. And I had gone through this major phase of Christianity where I uh, joined a Pentecostal church. I was part of the Pentecostal uh, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, which is the original snake handlers, the ones that believe if you let the snake bite you, that God will keep you from dying and that whole kind of thing. And I hit it hard. It's like anything spiritual over my life, once I came into the, my adulthood in that era, it was like I just hit the ground running. And there was a time where I came to the point where I was in my 20s. I was like 25, something like that. And I went and talked to the pastor. And I said, you know, I feel God's wanting me to do this stuff. He's wanting me to go out and, and spread the word and all that. And I said, but before I do anything, I have some questions. And I asked him these questions. We sat there in his truck and we kind of talked. And the one thing that just kind of stuck with me was that every question that I asked him, he gave me this thing of, well, the reason why this is this and that is that is because it's in the Bible. And that kind of stuck in me. Well, can you give me something other than this is the reason it is because it's in the Bible. So that kind of situation right there kind of stuck seeds of doubt in my mind with that situation. And I just moved on. And I, at that time, did not pursue any kind of Christian clergy thing. I just, it just didn't seem right. Uh, fast forward a few years, I ended up moving to here in Springfield, Missouri. Lived on the street for a while, had a stretch homeless, started to get into some things, met some really cool people. And then one year in, I think it was 1993, a friend of mine said, we're getting ready to do Salon 
at this such and such park, Busick State Park, just outside of Springfield. And uh, he was a member of Greenleaf Coven, Kate and Amber. And, and I'm like, okay, well, we'll come out and check it out. And we get there and it's after dark and we're in the parking lot and the car's kind of pulled up to this little rope thing that they had for their drive area right there. Then you look down and there was this grassy knoll kind of thing. And the coven was there and they were doing ritual. And I'm sitting up on the car, never seeing any kind of ritual before in my life. And at the beginning, there was this little tweak that said, oh, my God, they're going to go eat babies and all this kind of crazy stuff, because I had no idea what was going on. But the more that I sat there and the more that I watched, things started to spin in the head. The little cog started moving. Ritual is over. Uh, uh, Steve comes up, then Kate comes up and they go, well, you guys come on down to the campfire and all this, that and the other. And, you know hang out with us and stuff so we went down there and you know i got to talking to the people and just a little side note my friend was there and he had no clue just as much as i did and there was a young woman that had come from out of town and she had gone to her truck and when she came back there was a silhouette of her walking through the darkness towards the fire and she had a black robe with a silver cord on and was carrying a lit black candle and my friend that was with me he's going check it out he's poking me and stuff and I looked over there and he just out of the blue just said hey what's that for and as she came into the view of the fire she goes that's a candle so I can see <laughs> so wow. you know it's like these people are cool they're they're you know they, they were funny and I started talking to Amber I started talking to uh, Kate and they were telling me things like you know this and that and I, I was asking questions I wasn't afraid to ask questions and the one thing I asked straight up, I said, you guys don't eat babies. Do you? you don't do any of the oh, things God. that they that they say, you know, that, the, that everybody says that pagans do that you've seen in movies, all of it, the crucible, that whole thing. And they go, no, if we did, we wouldn't be here. We'd be in jail for doing those things. And, you know, that night I was invited to various other functions and stuff. And it kind of, you know, snowballed to eventually I was initiated into the coven in 94 and then moved on and kind of got more interested in other things looking outside of the duality of wicca and moved into druidry and then within this recent year and a half uh mostly so after the passing of dr buckland and the interview that i had with him i kind of started focusing in on uh uh cx wicca the Saxon side of things, because one of the first, actually the two first books that I ever read for myself on the subject was Sybil Leak's Diary of a Witch. And I have this, like I literally bought this. This is my original copy of the tree. An original tree. Yeah. That's not yeah. The right. yeah. The one that they, that Llewellyn reprinted. I'm sure, sure it's a good book, but I'm just oh, one of those. No, it's Llewellyn. It's, it was Weiser who did the reprint. But did they, the reprint. Yeah, it's a different title and everything. So, yeah, uh, the interview that I did with Dr. Buckland before he passed was for his book, Gypsy Magic. Uh, at that time, I was doing a show called Pagan Perspe uh, a Pagan Perspective on Blog Talk Radio. And at that time, I was doing uh, book reviews for Red Wheel Wiser. 
And what I would do is they would send me review copies of the books. And I said, well, I have this platform on the show. Can I start, you know, interviewing these people? And, and I also interviewed people that were outside of the spectrum of Red Wheel. I interviewed Mike Nichols, Selena Fox, uh, Gavin Frost, just all these different people, because I thought there were so many different cool people that I thought, you know, needed to have their, their story put out. And it was just, it was so cool to, I think one of the things for me, I don't know what a lot, a lot of people are drawn into the thought of, you know, that magic and it's all this stuff. And, you know, that's what they're going to get into. But for me, I think I took it a little bit deeper. I'm a cancer and cancers tend to be spiritual. We kind of gravitate towards this kind of thing. And that's where I'm going to go with this next section for you. How, you know, how did it feel whenever you started to move up a little bit more? Once you got past that, you know, that night with you, with the candle on the floor, how did you come more into the practice and things that you've done since then, even up to what uh, brought you into Saxon magic and your writing? Okay. Well, I know it's interesting hearing your story because I, I don't know. I think it's a story that a lot of us have the same thing. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I'll hear somebody, and I think it's a you know people will will find something that rings true for them, and they they will get real enthusiastic, and it's like this is what I believe, and I will never ever vary from these beliefs. <laughs> like, okay, well, when you grow up, we'll talk. Because, <laughs> Yeah, you, know, you were talking, and it just sounds so familiar. You know, my life has evolved because yeah. I'm living and evolving and changing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so where I have been as a pagan man has changed also. Mm-hmm. At first, it was entirely Wicca because that's what was out there and that's what I was exposed to. So I had the whole duotheist thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was familiar with Woden and I mean, like with some of the Anglo-Saxon deities, but they were just names for the witch gods. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So how it was pre- presented. Um, by, oh God, see, Woden, I've been in this for a long time, so this could be a really long story. I need to kind of abbreviate it a little bit. Basically, in a nutshell, I started out duotheistic, but I also, uh, you know, then I, I was familiar with the tree. It came out in 1974, mm-hmm. so I've been pagan for like three years when the tree came out. Mm-hmm. And um, by that time, I knew Amber. And uh, she was my first love as far as a long term sort of mean like more than a month or so sort of thing um and we you know i was one of the her first coven was the ring coven yes yeah i was one of the uh, initial ring coven people also there were six of us who formed the ring coven initially and the covenstead was on a farm cattle ranch down in Arkansas, where uh, some of us lived. And we had Celtic names for the deities. Uh, However, then as things progressed, Rang was fairly successful. And we also, we didn't want to just 
because people hear about us and want to join us. We just want everybody to join us, but we also, I mean, you know, we didn't want people just to be considered themselves part of the family, but we wanted them to be part of our community. Yeah. So I'm kind of an outer court sort of thing mm-hmm. that uh, for that, we used Buckland's rituals and did that in an Anglo-Saxon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of just had it, the Anglo-Saxon thing really rang for me, really, really worked for me. I have a lot of English ancestry myself, but I'm not going to say that's why, because I don't, I don't think your relationship with the gods needs to be, you know, needs to correspond directly with your personal ancestry. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be Anglo-Saxon. I would go, totally go Hellenic. And I have not a drop of Greek blood in me, but I kind of have a thing for Apollo. So, um, but anyway, I, 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 you know, after a while, then things fell apart. The ring coven fell apart. Amber and I broke up. Other people broke up. Uh, and Mike Nichols and his wife invited me to stay with them for a while in Kansas City, mm-hmm. which I was just going to do for like a week or so. That was the plan. I was just going up to Kansas City for a couple of weeks. I got up there and within three days. I knew I am home. I am not leaving. So, um, I lived in Kansas City for a while myself, so I know what you're talking about. Loved Kansas City, and I still do. I consider it my hometown. Most of my adult life was, was lived in Kansas City. And um, anyway, while there in Kansas City, uh, I was introduced to the SCA, if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. And because of the SCA, I, I learned a lot more about research. And that was where I began to find out, you know, began to realize that a lot of the stuff that Wicca had been telling me about history just wasn't true. Yeah. And so I, I finally reached a point where I kind of felt sort of betrayed. And I went for probably like a decade or so where I just, nope, not Wiccan, do not, do not call me that. I'm not, I'm not going to associate with that. I've kind of gotten past that. Now I don't mind if someone calls me Wiccan. Um, but if we're, if we're going to get into a deep discussion, you know, I have to clarify a few things that I don't necessarily buy. I'm definitely not duotheistic anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I don't always, my, in my own rituals here, they are not necessarily Wiccan rituals. I can step into a Wiccan ritual, mm-hmm. no problem. I can be part of a Wiccan coven, but on my own, there's a lot of things that I'm going to do a little bit different because I just don't see the, the need for it. Yeah. Um, so I have just kept evolving. I got to a point where, uh, I, mean, I, I believe in all the gods. I think if, to me, the best description of what pagan gods are, I don't know if you've ever read the book, but I'd highly recommend it. John Michael Greer wrote a book called A World Full of Gods. And it's a philosophical book that's just about polytheism and the logic and reason behind polytheism. I need to find that. I have his uh, Druidry Handbook and some other stuff, but yeah, he's a he's a prolific writer. I can see that being a good book. Brilliant man, and it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it to people. Um, and 
Yeah, funny thing about this thing about the not considering myself Wiccan. I also, because I didn't really consider myself Sax Wiccan. And uh, when was it? Maybe about, this was probably about 15 years ago or so. I was contacted by uh, the editor for Moon Books, and he was trying to put together a book that would be titled um, Witchcraft Today 60 Years Later. And he wanted it to be a, a look at all the different witchcraft traditions that have come out ever since Gerald Gardner's book, Witchcraft Today, was published. Yeah. And he wanted me to write a book on Sax Wicca. And I'm like, well, I don't really consider myself Sax Wicca. I can't really do that. A few months later, he contacts me again. Says, ah, come on, write this chapter for me. And I turned it down a second time. Third time he asked me, right before he'd asked me, I found out that there was a group of, of people in South America who had made compiled a list of the important leading figures in the Sax tradition. And I was number two after Buckland. Wow. It was like, okay, well, if I'm an important, important leading figure in the tradition, I guess I can write a chapter about it. But even then, I contacted Ray and had long talks with him about it. I really wanted to get his perspective in this. Well, and, you know, because I just felt like I was talking about somebody else's tradition. I have a lot of respect, or I had a lot of respect for Ray Buckland, and I, it, it just didn't seem right for me to be the one who would be speaking for it. Well, you know, you're telling me this, and that's making me think of something because in my earlier years, because it's like everybody, another thing is a lot of, young witches and stuff they kind of cut their teeth on big blue and all that is just a a more generalized expanded version of the tree and such and as time went by you know it you know uh dr buckland started writing other books doing other things got more back into spiritualism and different things and one of the things that started to be prevalent in uh the you know all, pretty much all of the 90s was the expansion of CX Wicca through Crowhaven House and the CX Wicca Voice. And uh, I, you know, it went on forever and things went good for a while. And then Dr. Buckland had to come in and quell a couple things. And then he kind of stepped out of that. And I was just surprised that this guy didn't, you know, try to get a hold of them. But then after looking at some of the things that had happened in those past years, um, I can see it. And that's when I'm kind of going to go into this next point. One of the things for me that has brought me into a little bit more of the uh, CX Wicked side of things is because I've looked and, and for me also the idea of, you know, sticking with everything that's dualist. I've gotten out of that mindset because I'm also a druid. And I look at it this way. It's like you have mom and dad. Okay. And you keep thinking of this mindset that, okay, all it is is mom and dad. But then there's this other part in the back of my head that goes, but what about the aunts, uncles, cousins, and all this other stuff? And you have to think, it's not just two people. Yes, we get the, we get the idea of the you know, gender association, male and female, goddess and God, Lord and lady, that whole kind of thing. But there's more to it. There's a broader branching story that's the gods that, are the whole, that make up the whole picture. Okay, and that's what kind of brought me into, you know, looking at some of these things. And then I, I brought this up in my interview with Dr. Buckland, the thing that um, over the years, you know, we've had all of these, you know, 
controversies and things within the craft community, different deals. But one of the things that kind of stuck there for a little bit was, and, and people were losing their shit, was the idea that Dr. Buckland and Tree said you didn't necessarily have to be uh, initiated by a gardenerian high priest or priestess. You could be your own priest or priestess and basically start a, a, a group, a coven, whatever you wanted to call it, without having to go through all of that. And also in that interview, he said, you know, I started to see that Gardnerian was kind of something that I didn't really want to focus on. And also that there were things that he didn't agree with, like in Gardnerian ritual, you have a wand and a thammy, but both of them are basically used for directing energy. So why do you need both? Why can't you just use the asami? So he kind of goes, well, I started thinking about these things. And that's when he started to come up with, you know, the, the tree, the, you know, the idea of CX Wick himself. And he said that he started to look into, well, if I'm doing this tradition for myself, what am I going to, you know, base it on? And he started to going into the Saxon side of things. And my question for you is at, at having that come up in the tree, what are your thoughts on, how he came up with the idea of just going going ahead and saying, okay, you don't necessarily need to have a traditional uh, uh, Wiccan initiation to follow gods and 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 do ritual and gather with people. What do you think of that? I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, the truth is, even at that time. What this meant was there were a very few people who were actually initiated, a big chunk of people who had their made up initiations because yeah. you had to be initiated. You know, and he's like saying, this is bullshit. And you know, and he was right. It was he gave people the freedom. You can still get initiated in the sex tradition, you can get initiated. But he was saying you don't have to be initiated to practice this, you do not have to be initiated to worship the gods. Here's a ritual you can do. Do this little ritual. Dedicate yourself to the gods. And really, things didn't, in a sense, things didn't change. It was just being more honest about it. Yeah. Had, I mean, it was, and everybody knew this. Everybody knew this. It was like people would joke about the dead grandmothers out there. Oh, yes, I was initiated by my grandmother, but unfortunately. I've heard that so many times. I, yeah. You know, I mean, it was just a joke. And, and he swept that away. And the whole idea that you had to have, really, I think that is the strong point of the Sayak's tradition. And it's something that people still don't get. This is how these groups you were talking about, this is where they fell. And, it's, and it still comes up. I had somebody, a really nice guy the other day, he was like, someone had told him he was an elder of the tradition. And he contacted me about it, and, and he's a nice guy, so I didn't want him to feel bad about anything. So I, I said, it's great that somebody acknowledged you this way, because obviously, you know, you're doing great things and everything. Mm -hmm. But there is no such thing as an elder in the Sayax tradition. That can be a thing that someone else says you are because they're honoring you. Yeah. But it's not a title. There are no elders. There's no kings. There's no earls. There's no leaders in the Sayax tradition. And, you know, if you read the tree, uh, there's a whole section in there on hierarchy where Buckland makes it very specific. We're not going to have any of that crap. You know, it's like the, high, the highest title you can have in the sex tradition is priest or priestess of a coven. And even then, 
it, you know, the only people who have to like acknowledge you as priest or priestess are the people who want to. If yeah. you're a jerk about it, they can go off and do their own thing. That's true. Yeah. So, you know, I've always felt that was the strong point. And I, I don't think it's as dramatic now in our culture today. Then mm -hmm. it was hugely, it was a huge statement. Yeah. Um, another book, uh, this can be kind of tedious, not because it's bad, but because it's very scholarly and very long. But um, Michael Lloyd wrote a book called um, Bull of Heaven, which was the uh, kind of a biography of Ed Vicinski, but it also kind of encapsulated what uh, Wickle was like in the 70s and, and early 80s, especially in the New York City area, but kind of all over the country. Yeah. And you could see throughout that book how you would have these people who, well, I'm the great high priestess and you have to kiss my royal butt. Yeah. And priestess ego, that, you know, the thing that goes to their head, you know, whenever they give themselves a title, they believe it. And, and you know, this whole thing, uh, like in Gardnerian Wicca, the, the word of the high priestess is law. And, so, and uh, not just the not just priestesses. I mean, it's just like, there were plenty of men who were doing the same thing. They were the, I'm the high priest and you have to do what I say. And here's the old laws that you have to follow. And, I, and or what? You got to throw me in ye, ye old dungeon? You know? <laughs> yeah, so it was then at that time when he wrote that, it was really, really dramatic for him yeah. to say. Since it was Ray Buckland, I mean, Ray Buckland pretty much brought Gardner yeah. To the United States. So when he says that, all of a sudden, it pretty much yanked the carpet out from under anybody who wanted to have this hierarchical structure and, and yeah, and power games of people. And 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 with that, it kind of made things a little bit more real because one of the things that we talked about in our interview was the fact that okay, you know, that was controversial. There were priestesses pissing their pants. That you know that it was even put out that way. Um, the fact that, okay, if you're really going to look at it, I gave him my thoughts. I said, well, you know, it's like, for me, it's not the idea of just like an initiation and then you, you know, you get to, you know, lord yourself over people. For me, initiation serves two purposes, to acknowledge the fact that there's something going on inside you. You're connecting to the gods, the earth, everything. You're making the connection. And also on the back burner side of it, is the initiation is coming through to say that this group accepts you, that they bring you into the fold, that they want to share the mystery with you. And, you know, after that, and then we, then Dr. Buckland said, that's true. But then again, who did the first initiation? Who initiated them? Why does that even matter? Even, you know, the fact that you are going through that, you know, initiation is only relevant in respect to, who did the initiation, mm -hmm. the individual and the group. So if, so it's okay. My former covenant, Kansas City, Avalon Covenant. If you come in, you might, you will get initiated into their covenant. It does have significance. If you have not been initiated into Avalon Covenant, you're not a member of the covenant. Mm -hmm. Defines it in that way, you know, and at the same, same way, it can say something about who is acknowledging your achievements? Mm -hmm. 
So if the initiator is somebody who has a lot of respect with a lot of people, that can be kind of a thing, you know, as like, if I hear someone was initiated and I know who they initiated, who initiated them, mm -hmm. I might have some understanding. I mean, right then, right there, that might give them a little bit of cred, even though I don't know them. Mm -hmm. But outside of those circles, it means nothing because initiation mm -hmm. is something that is internal. It's not the ritual. Yeah. That's, that's just the icing on the cake. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, the, the thing about that is, uh, you know, that, that kind of puts it in the idea that the only thing is, you know, that over the years, you know, because we look at how things were in the time in the 70s uh, of Dr. Buckland, Ed Fitch, Herman Slater, that whole kind of thing. And then we moved into the 80s with uh, people like, um, oh, God, uh, the frost and and just all these other different traditions things were starting to blossom the pagan movement was starting to get bigger and then you started to see the the, the disparity and the branching off of traditional craft and eclectic those that were taking things and maxing them and moving around like narug uh mm -hmm. the quintessential california uh uh you know their version of the craft and all these different things so the eclectics were doing what they wanted to do. The traditionals were doing what they wanted to do. The only thing is I do kind of, of lean more in a traditional mode, not in the idea of the initiation thing, but I, for me, I don't work eclectically as much as I, you know, as, as much as I do within a traditional vein, because to me, tradition gives you like, uh, tradition is just doing things again and again and again, and building that energy over your lifetime. And it gets you, it, it, it just gets your spirit and your, your energy into a space so that whenever you move on to the next, that you're gonna have all of that experience to bring onto you. The eclectic side of things, I mean, you know, the, let them, you know, go at it, that's great. But for me, it, it's like not, I like order out of chaos. And to me, a lot of uh, eclectic traditions do seem chaotic and it gets confusing mm -hmm. and so it's just like i think for me i i don't need to go into all of the who's and the 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 founders and all the people it's not the people i want to know what they're what they're teaching what their rituals are what the magic is why these things happen the way they do and you know that's where it's i want to yeah and that's where like for you I was just wondering, as you kind of moved into these things, how did it affect you whenever you really started, uh, you know, moving more into the Saxon side of things? How did how did it come to the point, like as an example, you know, you went through all these things through the years. What was it that kind of brought into your mind to start writing, to write your first book? What were the, the circumstances that brought you into the world of Saxon magic? Well... I started writing a long time ago. I mean, there's a difference between writing and getting somebody to publish what you've written, you know? Um, yeah. Honestly, okay, here's a, another funny story. I only read the Big Blue Book this last year. First time in my life. I've always liked Ray a lot. Always got along well with him. But I finally looked at the Big Blue Book this last year. The reason I hadn't looked at it before 
was because in 1984, I had sent a manuscript to Llewellyn mm -hmm. and I got the nicest rejection letter you could want from Carl Weshey himself, who was a big shot guy at Llewellyn. And uh, he was telling me he really liked my style of writing. He really liked the manuscript. He really liked what I had to say, but they weren't gonna publish it because it was similar to a book that they had just signed a contract with, with Ray Buckland. And he felt like the two books would compete against each other. Mm -hmm. So it didn't get published. And I'm kind of glad it didn't because I grew a lot before anything did get published. But because of that, I kind of had a sour grapes thing about the big blue book and just never really uh, looked at it until this year. And then I found out that Carl Weshe was a big fat liar. He told me I he wasn't going to publish the book just because there was this other book that it might compete against, but blah, blah, kind of led me to believe that mine was just as good, just fine. But no, Ray's book blew what I sent them totally out of the water. <laughs> was, I'm sorry, we're not going to print your book because we're going to, we got another one very similar to it, but yours is crap compared to this one. <laughs> but he didn't because he was a very kind and wonderful man. So anyway, I, I did write, you know, but I wasn't published. Um, you've heard of the Heartland Pagan Festival. Yep, I've been there. Uh, and uh, I met someone that Katie fondly calls Little Alaric there. Yes, yeah, right, Godson. Yeah. But um, anyway, the group that puts on Heartland, they, uh, the president had asked me if I would uh, create a newsletter for that group and edit it. And so for a couple of years, I was doing that. Mm -hmm. And actually writing half the thing. If you've ever done a pagan newsletter, you, you mm -hmm. realize that you're not just the editor. I actually had a fake persona that I made up. So everything in the newsletter didn't look like I was writing it. Okay, yeah. So I've been writing for a long time. Um, but, the, but becoming a published writer was a different thing. And that happened when um, I had run into uh, Christopher Penzak at a pagan festival in the East, in Ohio. And he had come to a couple of my workshops that I'd done. I mean, like a lot of these festivals, the people who come could do their own workshops. And I did a couple of workshops and he came to them. At the end of the festival, I'm packing up my tent and Christopher comes running up to me and he wants to talk to me before I leave. And he's telling me, he said, he said you know, you have a, a lot to say. He said, you really ought to write a book. And I'm like, oh, nobody's going to buy a book. You know, I, I, I never thought I would get published or anything. And he kept pitching it to me and I kept saying, eh, it's not going to happen. And then I had to make a, you know, like a six hour drive home. And on the way home, I realized I did want to write that book. Mm -hmm. And I knew what I was going to do. I wanted to write a book for me back in 1971 when I was first getting involved. But what I tell me back then. And uh, 
a lot of this was due to Christopher's influence. He made sure that my acquisitions editor knew that I would be sending in a, a uh, manuscript. And he told me to let him know when I was sending it in. And he dropped them a note and said, you know, my friend sent this manuscript, please look at it. Now, so I, that was a big boost. You know, I mean, you know how the publishing industry is. You send in a manuscript, well, they got like 99 others right over here, you know? So to get somebody, you know, to really get their attention, that's really a help. And uh, anyway, he helped me do it. And Llewellyn picked up Travis in Middle Earth. And so it, a lot of it was due to Christopher mm -hmm. and, and his influence. And, and, you know, the first book was Travels to Middle Earth, which is no longer in print now. Um, Llewellyn has uh, given the rights back to me. So if anybody who's listening to this, if there's a publishing company, <laughs> I mean, even a small publisher, if somebody wants to publish it, I am more than amenable to the idea of it going back into print someplace. Uh, you know, it's out there. Have, have you tried pitching to Wiser? Oh, I haven't really pitched it to anybody. I'm not really working that hard on it. I kind of like I'm moving forward with my life. Yeah. Got it. You know, and if somebody wants it, they are. Yeah. ADF kind of, a, well, actually not ADF, but a former arch, archdruid of ADF had said, you ought to see if ADF wants to uh, publish it. And I did contact them about it, but uh, the person who's in charge of their publishing didn't really seem interested. So it is available if someone wants to publish it. And um, yeah, and I said, it's like, I, I would rather focus my energies on other projects rather than try to pitch this book that mm -hmm. came out in 2009, even though I'm very proud of the book. Um, I love the fact that I still get like emails from people, uh, especially emails from people in England. I love that when I get someone from England who says, I'm so glad you wrote this book. There's so much Celtic stuff out there, but my ancestors are Anglo-Saxon. And, and I love that. And just, just as a side note, for those that are going to be watching this on YouTube, here just a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago or whatever, literally uh, as we were setting this up, I have videos that I put up for Raven Temple. And I'm also doing uh, teaching Big Blue uh, month by month for a year. And I had somebody, I, I was posting something on there and I said, Yes, here pretty soon, I'm going to be doing an interview with Alaric Albertson. And I, the post is still there. The comment's still there. He goes, yeah, I live in Yorkshire or something like that in the UK. And his book is The Bomb Diggity. And I'm going, well, do you have all of them? She goes, unfortunately, I only have like two. So maybe the one that was the, the older one that was, you know, had gone out of print, she wasn't able to get it. And I've had, I've seen people from Canada that have, have had it. And then, of course, uh, people that we know in South America with the with the CX people there, you know, there are some of those that have it. So that's the one thing I think is so cool that, you know, even though there is, you know, there are authors that are putting out uh, volumes that are going as big as Dr. Buckland did with Big Blue and other things like that, that even in this realm, if somebody has an interest in something magically and there's a book that's out there for them. They're going to get a hold of it. Pagans are voracious readers. It's not just because we just like to sit by the fire and read. We want to learn. And that's so cool is that, you know, with your books and stuff, people are not afraid to go online. 
It's still on uh, Amazon uh, and all these different things. So it's like there is a market for everything that you are putting out there with, with your writings and things like that. And uh, one thing, uh, there was a question that somebody asked me, and I kind of want to put this to you and see what your thoughts are. Um, you know, we have all of these different variations of different traditions and things like that. And somebody asked me straight up, okay, what is the difference? What would you say are the defining characteristics that are similar and separate for, such as a tradition of Azatru, general heathenism, and uh, working Saxon magic in, in whatever form that may be? What do you think are the things for you that are similar? And what are the things that kind of separate them from one from the other? Okay, fair enough. Some of these terms, I think, like Asatru tends to get used as a very loose slang term as a synonym for heathenry. And one thing people should be aware of, I mean, it's because people use, if people use a word in a certain way, that's what the word means, okay? But specifically, Asatru is Icelandic paganism. Mm -hmm. you know, it is the native religion of Iceland. And just because people are up in Northern Europe, this doesn't mean they're all the exact same people. They have similar languages, but, but not identical. Mm -hmm. um, Anglo-Saxon, I'm just gonna focus on how Anglo-Saxon differs, what makes it Anglo-Saxon. There are certain things that you can definitely identify. It's not just like Norse with funky names. Uh, one difference is there's a different pantheon. Uh, there are deities. I mean, we're very fortunate that we don't have to deal with the whole Loki thing. You know, there's, that's just not part of Anglo-Saxon tradition. We don't know why. We don't know if the Anglo-Saxons boldly refused to accept Loki into their pantheon or if Loki just never took an interest in this little island. But he's just not part of our thing. And likewise, we have a goddess, Elstra, who is found on the continent, uh, among continental Saxons as Ostara, but she's not found anywhere in Scandinavian, like Norse mythology. Mm -hmm. Mythologies are, are different, uh, but even when you're looking at deities that are the same deity, our perceptions, our relationships with those deities can be very different. Uh, in The Lost Gods of England, Brian Branston points this out on how the Anglo-Saxon Woden is so different than the Norse Odin. And some of this has to do with time frames as well as spatial. But Odin is this warrior god, this war leader who's ready to lead his gods and heroes into Ragnarok, oh, 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 you know? Whereas Gandalf is the best image I can think of for Woden. And a really simple reason was because Tolkien based his character of Gandalf on the god Woden. Mm -hmm. You know, Woden is this magical shapeshifter wizard god who tries to keep a balance in all of the worlds and he travels, he roams, he wanders to, to, to uh, keep an eye on how things are going. Uh, but he's much more of a wandering wizard than he is a war chieftain. Mm -hmm. So 
even the perceptions of these different deities can be very, very different. And then in addition to that, there's kind of a cultural thing that's hard to really identify. Uh, people like Marion Ingham have tried to describe it. The best way to describe it would be Norse religion tends to focus on the individual. It's the hero, you know, like uh, individualism is really a big deal. Mm -hmm. As an Anglo-Saxon, it's the tribe, it's the culture. There is a, a branch, there's a, or, you know, there's a form of Anglo-Saxon practice called theodism that is mm -hmm. totally wrapped up in the whole concept of the tribe, much more so than other people, but I think all Anglo-Saxons have this feeling that, you know, the family, the tribe, this is really, really important to us in a way that it isn't necessarily as important in the enforced practice. Before you go on, uh, just one thing I, I'm, I'm curious on, you know, knowing that Azatru has more of that Icelandic situation with the warrior deal and stuff, do you see uh, you know, uh, the Saxon being more tied to Germanic tradition, that, that, you know, more so to, to that region and stuff compared to being, you know, over there, do you see it, it tied in any way there? And how does that work, you know, for, for, you know, differentiating? Because there, like you say, there's so many different types of attitude. There's so many different definitions. The, the one thing is a lot of people, do you consider Anglo-Saxon tradition heathen? You know, because yeah. some people say I've seen so many people argue that oh, no, it's not heathen because this, this, and this, and I'm going, dude, what? Oh, uh, you know, you're gonna get that. You know, I don't care what you. Here's the one truth I found in in our pagan culture: no matter what you do or what you say, there are there's gonna be some joker over there telling you that it's wrong. Yeah, and and. In situations like that, you have people who they want to, I'm going to define what heathenry is, and if you're not exactly what I'm saying it is, then you're not. Then you're not, yeah. And, you know, it's like their ancestors are probably, like, staring at them, like, where did you get this? Yeah. I mean. And the reason why I say that, because, you know, one thing is, like, you know, people, there are people out there that are assholes about that kind of thing. But my deal is I never... To a degree, I never off-put what they're saying. And if they do it where they're not an asshole, they, they don't believe it, but they kind of get, if they're going to give me something that kind of backs it up a little bit, something that, you know, doesn't seem so far-fetched, if they're going to say, well, this, this, and this, and this is why, instead of just going, nope, nope, you know, and you see so many people that have done that over the years. It's just like, if you're going to come at, come at it with a little bit of a sense of, you know, there's these facts between the, you know, about the cultures and all these different stuff. And then you kind of, I'll kind of go, okay, well, that makes a little bit of sense. And that makes a little bit of sense. And it makes the, it makes the argument a little bit more plausible for what you're saying. But then again, on the other side of it, is there are so many pagans out there that do so many things different that have so many perceptions of what this is that, you know, how, who am I to say, that somebody who, uh, you know, follows the, the Anglo-Saxon traditions and stuff like that, that they, that they're not allowed to consider themselves heathen. I can't say that. I don't have that. I don't have the power to say that about what they do. Well, if that person doesn't want to consider me heathen, 
I'm okay with that because I'm guessing that person is probably somebody who I really don't want to hang out with anyway. You know, I mean, that kind of exclusivity, I've got my little private thing. It's like, I mean, it is so juvenile. You know, obviously our words have to have some meaning, but it's like, first, what does heathen mean? To me, heathen means a polytheist of, with a Northern European Germanic tradition behind them. And even that is kind of a modern definition because what does heathen mean literally? It just means the same damn thing that pagan means. It's just a Germanic yeah. word rather than a Latin word. Both of them means <laughs> basically they mean a hick. You know, yep. country dwellers. Yeah, that's yeah, what we that's are. What both of those words mean, you know, so it's like it, it's a synonym. So if you want to get, you know, really technical about it, anybody who practices a polytheistic religion would be a heathen. Today, I think it's generally accepted that it is a Germanic Northern European tradition of some kind. And sometimes you'll, you'll hear people speak a more general term of the northern tradition you know because of, you know germanic kind of implies germany and, and mm -hmm. you know, when we're saying germanic we don't mean germany we're talking about a culture that includes england sweden denmark iceland you know and you know for me like the other thing about that is like i teach this whenever i've had classes and and, and, and blogs that i've written and things like that is the fact that in those earlier years, those earlier centuries, the thing was like, as an example, with the Celts, the Celts started in one area of Eastern Europe and they migrated. And what happened as they migrated across that landmass, they came through, uh, you know, the German regions and all this stuff, and they were like a vacuum cleaner. They sucked up all kinds of people that started to integrate in their into their society. And when they finally ended up where they were in Spain, Gaul, uh, Britain proper, Ireland, and, and these other places that were right in there. Um, the idea that, you know, that they, that they were the same way they were when they started as where they ended up isn't true. And then the other part of that, that's why I, I gravitate towards the idea of, you know, the, the pantheistic side of Druidry and things like that. But when you look at the history and such, like a lot of people go, well, Ireland's Ireland, and that's where Druidry is and all this stuff, and it's this, that, and the other. And I do, I, my tradition of Druidry is a more excellently Irish type, but I look at the history of things, and a lot of people, I also tell them the examples of that there were times when there were those that had come uh, from various parts of uh, Eastern Europe, had come across, and they wanted to go to Greenland and Iceland, and where did they stop? they stopped in Ireland and the Irish uh, people there took in these more Norse, if, you know, if there's, uh, that's any kind of designation and they kind of traded thoughts. They traded, uh, you know, art styles and things and, and armor and all this knowledge. So once they got through and they, you know, said, we'll let you hang out here, then you can go do whatever it is you're going to do. So it kind of, that kind of influence, nothing is ever, the same as it was when it started so people say well it's pure and it's all this no even the druidry that i practice has influences from you know heathen practice and all these other things because those were the people that's the way it was it's like i can't say i can't say well there were never those people there because history and you know the way things you know that we know 
show to be different. And people just go, well, I just, I don't get that and stuff. And I go, it's out there. The information is there. Once you disseminate it, it's up to you on how you're going to use it. And, you know, coming into that also, you know, where we are now, uh, you know, well, for one thing, do you have anything going on within, uh, within Saxon working now? Are you working with people? Are you possibly going to do a book? Any, do you have anything that you're working on that kind of touches things that are going on now? Well, I'm constantly doing things. I'm not doing anything publicly that's all that specifically Anglo-Saxon now. Um, when we moved to Dubuque three years ago, when we were in Pennsylvania, we had we had a Sax coven there. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to be very conservative about forming things like that. Again, it's that Anglo-Saxon thing and, uh, that I have going on. But I take you in. It's like, now you're my brother or sister, and this is a commitment to me. This is not just a little game. So I tend to be very hesitant about bringing people in that close to me. Um, so, you know, I can't really say I'm doing anything specifically Anglo-Saxon. My husband and I, we held our own private rituals here. Uh, I am working on a book right now that I don't want to talk about, not because I'm trying to be super secretive or anything like that, but I know me and I will do one of two things when it comes to my, I will either write about it or I will talk about it. <laughs> but if I start talking about it, it takes that energy and throws it over there. So I don't like to talk about a project that I'm working on currently. Um, I, there are things that I'm doing. Um, this last year, uh, I was one of the people uh, who founded a group, uh, it has a Latin name, uh, Solicia Magiscriptor, which we just usually say SMS because it's a lot easier than saying yeah. Scriptor. <laughs> um, and it is, we describe it in Latin, it means the wizard's guilds. And it is a set of guilds. You will see a lot of Buckland influence in this, and that it's a very non, it, it, it's not a we, we're telling you what to do sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you get anyone who joins one of the guilds one level at a time, you're given a list of tasks to prove your skill and knowledge in whatever guild you're working through. And um, you have a mentor who's a master of that guild who will give you feedback. But their biggest thing, there is there, and, and anybody who is one of these mentors, they, we know, everybody knows, we're not there to tell this person how to do it, but just mm -hmm. to kind of give them advice as they explore it and learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, Anyway, we, it's been coming along nicely. We've got, uh, it's all held together with the SMS Wizards Council, which is seven different people who, again, it's like, it's not like the Wizards Council is going to call you up before us, you know, or anything like that. But when there's a policy that has to be made for the group, it's like, this is the group of people who say, okay, this is how we're gonna do it. Um, 
And then within the group, we have seven different guilds right now. We're hoping that we will, in time, increase that to other areas, but they're all different forms of magic. We have abjuration, which is uh, like protective magic mm -hmm. and grounding and centering, that sort of thing. And then, and then exorcisms, anything in that category. We have an alchemy guild. Uh, we have an artificers guild. Uh, artificers is people who make things that are used in magic, mm -hmm. whether it's ritual garb or magical tools or whatever that's what's covered with the artificers uh, cartomancy card reading you know we have to translate these things uh we have a healing guild a uh, herbalism guild that's oh and the rune guild so that's the set the seven that we have currently and you know we're hoping in time that we can add some more guilds to that as as interest increases and, and grows. And basically, if anybody's interested in doing it, we we have it set up where, I mean, if you know somebody, of course you can just go to somebody in the in the wizards guilds and say, hey, I want to want to get involved, you know. Uh, but we realize you know you need to outreach better than that so we do have a facebook group and anybody who's interested in sms wizardry all you have to do is go to sms wizards and on facebook and when you join that group then there are different posts where you respond it's like for each of the seven guilds mm -hmm. pop in there and say hey i'm interested in doing this guild and somebody, you know, uh, the masters, the various masters of the guilds are all watching these. And when you get, when you see a name pop in, one of us will then send that person a private message. And it's always the same message. It's basically, hey, send me your email and I'll get you set up. And you send, you send that person your email and then they send you your first thing. And, and from that point on, you're working through the guilds. So, um, and it's been working really well so far. We have some safe safeguards to make sure it doesn't get abused. Yeah. Uh, novices don't get any protection at all because they're just novices. Presumably, you're not going to be a novice for more than like three days. Um, <laughs> but as soon as you hit apprentice level, your master is now, it's the new policy we instituted, is now required to make sure that you have... Uh, contact information for one of the seven members of the Wizards Council. Mm -hmm. So that if you have any issues at all, you can contact the council directly. And uh, we thought that was important to institute that because we've had no problems, but we can foresee a day where we could have someone try to pull the power trip thing. But yeah, and it's, it's good to have those safety valves just in case yeah. those, those kind of things go awry. One, one last thing uh, and, and a couple other things before we uh, end the interview. Now, you know, for, for, you know, for yourself and, and me, those of us that have been uh, into pagan traditions for more than 30 or 40 years, you know, looking back at the, uh, the people that brought it over and, you know, even those that were already here that kind of set things up like with uh, Raymond Buckland, Victor Anderson, um, uh, you know, all these other people that kind of Selena Fox and these different things. We've had this, you know, bedrock 
that has built up the pagan movement. But then again, you have what happened in the late 80s and all the way through the 90s, where I call it the Llewellyn explosion. Everybody was just going to Llewellyn exclusively. And my thing is, I'm, I'm, obje I'm objective, but I also look at things and, you know, see what they are. But there was a lot of good books written by authors for Llewellyn. And there was a lot of bad, and I'm not going to name any authors. Well, I will. Douglas Monroe, 21 Lessons of Merlin. Basically, he was just a scam artist. But you have, the, you know, we have all these people that have kind of brought things through. And then we've had those that we've lost, such as, you know, Margot Adler, and we've lost Isaac Bonowitz and, you know, Raven Gramassi and so on and so forth. With this flow of people leaving this life and going on to the next and, you know, we are here with people like John Michael and Chris Penzak and Raven Digitalis and all these guys that are different and in different parts of the country, and even around the world. What do you see coming for the pagan movement as we kind of are, are the, the elders that have been around for so long that they're moving on? What do you see coming in the future for, for you know, pagans in, you know, anywhere? Well, God, that's impossible to answer. I mean, I think it's kind of exciting. You know, I mean, I'm not exactly a spring chicken myself. So I'm just kind of like, hey, look, I'm still alive. <laughs> you know? A lot of people you mentioned, they were contemporaries of mine. They were, yeah. You know, who I knew. And, um, and you left out Buckland, who you know, hasn't been gone. Yeah, and it's just that. Um, even though, of course, he was always older. He was kind of. Definitely, he was like old enough to be my father. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these people, uh, yeah, that's going to happen. I'm going to be going too. Hopefully not tomorrow, but it'll happen. And, uh, you know, we, as you have said, it's like there's new people popping up and there will be. I find, I think this is a very exciting time. I think it's a time that we, where we don't know what the answers are going to be. Mm -hmm. Because... Things are so different now. Um, I, I have a hard time wrapping my own head around it. There, thanks to the internet, which is a wonderful tool, you know, we had like so much information mm -hmm. at your fingertips. Now, unfortunately, as you are well aware, this also means we have so much misinformation. Yep. Um, honestly, one reason we started up. SMS wizards, and I would like to see more things like that. Uh, you'll also see there's some like schools starting up and things like that. Um, I think Buckland had a great idea on abolishing the whole initiation thing as a requirement, but at the same time, I think it's going to be nice to have groups and organizations. I, I would like to see more of this where you do have sort of like I mean, it's kind of the same thing as an initiation. Uh, uh, Christopher has his temple of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. you know, well, if you're a blah, blah, blah degree in his temple of witchcraft, that means something. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. what it means from this person to this person to this group, these things can change, mm -hmm. but it means something. And I do think that's important because we're in, we're in an era where you go out and ask a question and you're going to have 50,000 people give you answers. And the majority of those people are just spouting out their very ignorant, un, you know, like 
They have no idea what they're talking about. It just amazes me sometimes people will, the, the opinions that I see hitting mm-hmm. me. And I'm like, where did you get that? I heard somebody say, I, oh, well, you know, you don't have to worry about curses because they only work if you believe in them. Like, where do you get that? I mean, <laughs> we've got magical traditions that specific. I mean, if I was going to curse somebody, not that I do that, but if I was going to, I would not tell them about it. Yeah, that's true. You no, know, it's like, and most real practitioners would not tell them about it. Mm-hmm. So, because you don't, they don't have to know. It's like, but here's somebody espousing an opinion. They have nothing to base this on except their own little wishful thinking. Um, so, I would like to see more education. And again, it's like trying to have a fixed defining standards is never going to work but some kind of education where you could say like i can say through sms wizards i can say i was mentioning somebody last night i am a journeyman artificer which i'm very proud of because generally anything i try to put together falls apart (laughs) but i was able to get to journeyman artificer it means something you know it's like it's a it's an accomplishment uh, so I'd like to see more of that, where we have what, ways of expressing how you know what you know. What do you think of like saying like that right there? You know that that with the thing that you're doing with SMS wizards and stuff. What do you think of the the situation with like uh, Cherry Hill Seminary? Somebody that's you know out there that is trying to they do they do all kinds of stuff. They've been doing all kinds of stuff for years, but it's like with them they try to be you know, as much uh, on the edge of everything. And whenever they, uh, you know, they have their classes, they have their coursework and stuff. You know, some people, why do I get to go to college to, to, to do magical work? You don't have to, but this is an avenue that you have available to you. You don't have to go buy everything from Llewellyn and just take it as gospel. And, and that kind of makes me go into my next question with what you just said there. Do you think that you know through our lifetimes and beyond do you think that there will all that there will pretty much always be a place for initiatory traditions and not just because there for a while it seemed like certain traditions that were initiatory were kind of getting pushed to the background and everybody was focusing on everything that was being eclectic eclecticized you know well you can do 50 different things in this ritual with 30 different gods and all this. And for the people that do that, that's great. But you know, for the things like (laughs) what that does is it scatters the energy. When you throw it out that way, it goes that way, but tradition and working and really honing your craft, honing what you're doing through whoever it is, whether it's the wizards guild or what Oberon Zell did with the gray wizard school or all these different things. It's like, you know, at least you have something, a framework to work within. It seems like a lot of times eclectic situations don't really give you that much of a framework. And like you were saying, uh, the, the, you have a greater chance in my mind of getting more of that misinformation. What do you think about that situation between the two, the eclectic side and, you know, how the traditional uh, craft and, and pagan working will go into the future? I think they're both going to continue on. I mean, you can't really get rid of either one of them. Mm-hmm. I don't really think that you should try 
because even when you have that person who is just dancing from one tradition to another and doesn't really know what they're doing and kind of just playing with it, you never know when that little butterfly might settle down somewhere. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how we evolve and how we change and everything changes. I think it's really important that we accept and embrace paganism, however it's being practiced. Because even if we don't agree with what they're doing, with how this other person is doing it, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's not fulfilling some need for that person. Mm -hmm. And that person may eventually, well, you know, even in attitudes, some, there was an article that was published in something. I got into a discussion with somebody about it. The article was talking about people who have very unpagan, undesirable attitudes. We're talking like misogyny, racism, homophobia, all of that. Mm -hmm. The article was saying these people have no place in paganism, blah, 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 blah. But I brought up a counterpoint. It's like their ideas have no place in paganism. That's right. That's right. And But, you know, people change. And that's, you, that's true. Yes. Uh, first of all, you can't. You can't say you can't be pagan. They're just going to go over and start their own little, you know, white boy club, straight boy club, you know, over here. You know, you can't do that. Um, and if you give them a chance, you can you can welcome the person in and say, but no, that's not acceptable. No, 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 still wrong. You know, but you can still welcome the person in. And I know this is true. I know a lot of people think I'm very optimistic and maybe I am. I don't think I'm overly optimistic. Mm -hmm. I have seen in my lifetime, uh, in just a portion of my lifetime, my husband is not nearly as forgiving as me. He ran into a man, this is at Heartland, uh, just walked in on a man who was talking to several other, and it was like the white straight boys club. And they were talking about all the faggots that are there at Heartland because, you know, we just run the whole place. So, you know, and he was so pissed, so pissed. And yes, that attitude was completely inappropriate. Yeah. But this guy was also heathen. And so his path with me crossed and crossed and crossed and crossed over. Mm -hmm. And I never brought this up. I wasn't there. I would have said something probably right then, but I never brought it up. Well, Scott and I get a holiday card from this man every Yule. Every <laughs> Yule. We get a card, a little note. People grow. People change, you know? So when you see somebody, I mean, no matter what they're doing, you might say, no, this is not acceptable here. Yeah. And otherwise, with your practices, if you've got a group, Let's say you've got an Anglo-Saxon group. You have every right to tell someone who's coming in who suddenly wants to throw a kate into the mix. No, that's not appropriate here. Mm -hmm. But you still need to respect that person. And we should try to embrace everyone who comes to us. Yeah. You know, every single person who comes to us. Because that's the only way people are going to heal and grow. And we're going to make a better world for tomorrow. And, and I think with that also, it's the idea like for myself, and you've seen this, you know, that since we've been talking on, on Facebook these past months, and even before I asked you to 
do this interview and stuff. I myself have, uh, I'm, I'm eclectic in the traditions that I follow. Let's put it this way. I, I do ceremonial magic, all of Salima and Golden Dawn. I'm a Druid. And I also have just recently got started with, uh, you know, doing Raven Temple of CX Wicca. But also, like also my interest, which I've always had in men's mysteries. And that all comes together. You know, there's people that may listen to some of the things that I go into about each of these different subjects. And they go like, well, I don't, I don't see that as being real or this or that or whatever. But over time, you know, something that I may say or something that may happen while we're together uh, in whatever situation, you know, right now they might have that attitude. But that doesn't mean that sometime down the line, they're going, their attitudes are going to change. And out of all of those things, I don't want them to be like me. I want them to be like them. But if something with Druidry sticks to the wall for them, if something about men's mystery sticks to the wall for them or whatever, that's a good thing because you're, you're helping to influence their spiritual life so that, you know, they can find themselves and they can be who they're supposed to be. And like it always says in perfect love and perfect trust, it, the perfect love and perfect trust thing is you don't tear people down for what they do you build them back up and you help them do what they want to do and that's what you do with your writing and you know other people do and stuff like that and that's what we really need in this world how many of us most of us are first generation you know most of us came to paganism from someplace else mm -hmm. it'd be really hard to remember to leave all of your baggage at the door mm -hmm. You know, so when people bring a little bit of that in, I think you have to cut them, cut them some slack mm -hmm. and let them tear up your group, but at the same time, as much as possible. I, I really feel like among us first generations, I think it's safe to say that to some degree, we're all broken. There was some place, some place along the road where all of us hurt in some way. If we didn't, we wouldn't have gone to the trouble to switch to an alternative spiritual path. Mm -hmm. You know, so we also need to extend compassion to everybody. I think that's terribly important. Um, and it is so easy because the things that hurt me may not be the things that hurt you. So when mm -hmm. you come in, you may have something that you're carrying that I just find, okay, I, I don't relate to that at all. But that's okay. I can mm -hmm. still care about you and welcome you as we work on our ourselves. Definitely. Um, also, uh, just out of uh, you know curiosity, people might want to know what are you doing within the next few days for your midsummer? Oh well, um, I am going. I can't tell you that either. I'm so sorry. There's reasons why I can't tell you that. I am doing something for Midsummer. I promise I'm doing something for Midsummer, and I could tell you privately later what I'm doing, but it's not something I can broadcast to the whole Okay, world. that's cool. So, but um, at least you are doing something. Some people are just going to sit home and, you know, light a candle or whatever. Personally, today here in Springfield, it got really hot. It's just now cooling back down to 89. We got up to 94 just about a half an hour, 45 minutes before I got set up for you to come on. Uh -huh. And but what we're doing on uh, Saturday is we're going to be at one of the local parks and, you know, with COVID messing things up, you know, here in Springfield, they finally lifted the mask mandates 
and they're allowing people to get out a little bit more, a little bit more unrestricted. So what we're going to do is we're going to get together for a longest day ritual, and we're going to be at uh, Phelps Grove Park here in Springfield. For those of you that might be from Springfield that check this out, and we're going to be doing just a little drumming get together, a light ritual to say, okay, COVID eight, kill this all. We can come out of the cubby hole and be safe and stuff, even though we're not, you know, most everybody's, uh, you know, vaxxed and, and stuff like that, but we can come together and that we can see that, yeah, we can beat this thing. We still got a little ways to go because COVID's a tricky little bastard. We don't know all that we need to know about it, but people don't have to fear, you know, have to stay hunkered under the bed any longer, you know. Yeah. So good. And, you know, I can't remember the midsummer, but it's like we, we have been opening up here. Uh, we have a group here with the incredibly creative name because I came up with it, of Dubuque Pagans. I've uh, seen those pictures that you put up, yeah. Okay, so that's our community here. And and uh, just, we were, like pre-COVID, we were meeting every other week. And, mm -hmm. you know, and just this month, we've had our second meeting. We're doing like, like first and uh, third Wednesdays of the month we get together now. And you know, so that's really nice to be able, and everybody last night, everyone was talking about how great it was to be there in person, be able to you know, actually talk to people and, and be with our community. It's just not the same when you're in your homes. So we're really pleased with that. And I'm looking forward to more things opening up. I'm, uh, I'm gonna be speaking at the Earth Warriors Festival in September, which I'm really super- Awesome. You know, and, and just seeing the world come alive again and, and, you know, people touching people again, that's just, I think that's so important. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's one thing I think is def, definitely missed. The thing that I'm kind of sad for, I don't know if you've seen it, but right now, and I, I guess that's just the way that they want to do it, but for now, Heartland's doing virtual. They're, oh, no. The Pagan Festival is going to be virtual. And I miss, you know, I haven't been to the land in 20 years. And the reason why is because I went to the Heartland, Kate and I and some other people and stuff, went to the first Heartland after they moved from their old location. They used to be at a Boy Scout camp. And then we they moved. There one year. We were just at the Boy Scout camp one year. And they moved, well, they, and then they, for Gaia. And yeah. back then, whenever, the very first time I went there, uh, the entire festival from the first day, which was Thursday night, until people had to be out by Monday morning or Sunday night or Monday morning, whatever it turned out to be. And it was 50 bucks. And then you went in 50 bucks pre-reg, 75 at the gate. And then you would go up, register for your work hours, and then go up top, find your camp and just, and I miss Heartland so bad. But over the years... It's just gone up and up and up and up. And I can understand costs going up, but for me right now, you know, with the pandemic and all this other stuff, it's just like, even with pre-reg, and even if I worked 48 hours of, of volunteer time there, I still just, I just getting up there and doing all these things. You know how we are, Pagans, when we're at Heartland, we got to go to the merchant circle and buy things. And then we got to bring food. And then we got to bring mead and all these things cost a while so the days of $50 and $75 Heartland are long past and there's other festivals we've got uh, the Dragon Fest Elk Fest in in um what you call it PSG did a couple stints here in Missouri they used to the last time they were 
here they were up at the old witch camp at Camp Zoe, which was what uh, Starhawk used, uh, Diana's Grove and that kind of thing. And now it's turned into some kind of resort thing. They bought out all the land, graded it. I seen when they brought in all the machines to just basically bulldoze the place. And it looked horrible. I'm just like, oh, that was just so sad that it had been used for so many cool things. And then, you know, something happened and, you know, PSG is wherever PSG is going to be. PSG, I think, is going to be or has been or is going to be uh, virtual until Selena gets the idea in her head that, okay, we can do this safely for everybody. But a lot of the major festivals are going to be that way for a while. I'm hoping next year that even if there's a festival down in, in Arkansas or Oklahoma or something close by for people to go to where we can start to come back together a little bit. You know, those times then once the all clear kind of comes through, then we can do Heartlands in full, it's full glory and PSG and all these things, because I want to be able to hug people yeah. and dance and drum and stuff like that. I'm going to do a real Heartland this year, but yeah, I'm still waiting. I was, I was going to go last year and then of course the whole world went to crap. Yeah. So I missed last year and okay, I'm missing this year again. And yeah, I do want to get out there. It's been a number of years since I've done Heartland. And um, so I'd like to get back there again. I'm really thrilled to do Earth Warriors. I like the fact that it, it tends to be pretty affordable. And it's a really nice gathering. It's out in Ohio. And it's not until September, like the end of September. So are, and you are, are you going to be presenting while you're there? Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's good. Um, yeah, generally, I anymore, it's a thing when you become a pagan author, it's like, unless I'm presenting, it's like, I usually don't do festivals. I'll do Cartland because I helped create Cartland. But, you know, mostly I, I just don't do festivals unless I am presenting because it's not fair for this one festival to let me in free and pay me and give me this, 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 and this to come to their festival. And then I just show up at this other one and they don't have to do anything. So I just, it's like, okay, fine. Unless they actually have me as a presenter, I don't go to them. But I still go to a lot because everybody wants me to go, you know, do presentations. Yeah. And I think that's pretty cool. One more thing for people, you know, one, uh, you know, a lot of people, have always had this misconception about pagans that we're Satanists and that we eat babies and stuff like that. Yeah. But we're just, we're normal people. We do a lot of the same things that you do. And one thing that me and Alaric do is we play D and D. We yes. are nerds. I've yeah. been playing since 1977. Oh my God. And I, I am. And I love it. And I'm going to be running some games here within the next two or three weeks. And hopefully as the pandemic loosens its grip here on Springfield, instead of just playing online, I'm going to be actually able to get some of the old people that I play face to face with and get them to come out of the cave and come and hang out. So it's like for people that are pagan out there that have those kind of hobbies, get them going because, you know, if, if your area is starting to get safer and things like that, you know, and you have, have the way to do it, play D and D play video games. You know, we don't always have to be magical and mystical 24 hours a day. We can have fun and drink mead and roll dice and just do all these other kind of fun things. And uh, uh, for people that are watching this, 
I want to take the time to thank Alaric for coming on today and doing this interview. Hopefully, maybe sometime in the future, we could do another one after the super secret book comes out. Maybe I'll, <laughs> we'll see how that goes and stuff. But, you know, for people out there that are watching with this, you know, the, the other interviews that I've done with like Mike Nichols, Raven Cremasi, The Frost and all these different things and Ellen Everett Hopman. There are so many different traditions that are out there and things to learn magically and whatever. Don't be afraid to check them out. If there's something that tickles your fancy, get on it because life is short. And if you don't indulge those things that you want to find out about it, you're going to always think, well, why didn't I get into that before? You know, you, you don't want to have regrets. Nobody wants to have regrets, even in their spiritual life. And one thing that I think is important, we look at all the social aspects. It's great to be out with the people and do all these things. But for me, it's not just, you know, having the, the ritual after party and all this stuff. It's ritual itself. That's what I gravitate to. That's why, you know, whenever I was invited by Amber and Kate those years ago, that was kind of the spark that lit everything off. My druidism, the, you know, everything that I've done and what I'm going to continue to do. And that's why I'm glad there are people like Alaric and others that uh, have taken the time to write about everything from Azatru to heathenism to Christopher Penzak's work and on down the line, Donald Michael Craig with his work in uh, ceremonial magic before his passing and stuff like that. There's somebody out there that has the good information that you need. And, before, and just to qualify that, if something seems like bullshit, check it out a little bit and if you follow it down the rabbit hole it might be but then again if you come along to something that kind of says okay this over here may be bullshit but this here kind of makes a little bit more sense you'll be more discerning about what it is that you're going to take into your mind because you know that's the one th that can affect your ritual ritual work how you do magic and stuff because if everything that you're thinking and, and uh, about and doing is bullshit your stuff is gonna be bullshit so it's like for you for, for for you know it could be just somebody else's you know thought but the reason why i say that is because sometimes people think well i can curse whoever i want i can hex and all this stuff that was the witch's maximum you can't you can't heal if you can't hex true i'm one of those people that kind of goes against the read the idea of ant harm and do what they will but on the other side of that i know that if I do something that is bad enough in general and that karma goes out, it can boomerang back and kick me in the ass. That's called action and reaction. It doesn't have to be all these other things about, you know, the idea of the curse. It's if you do a curse, you better have a reason for it and, you know, know what the consequences are. That's, just, that's with any magic, with any tradition that you, you know, that you pursue. So it's like, don't be afraid. And if you are on Facebook, uh, I seen Alaric's post too earlier today and part of last night. If you see him on Facebook and you happen to be pagan, say hi to him. And maybe you might want to strike up a friends with friendship with him. You've got might have questions. Don't pester the man. Let him, you know, do what he has to do. But also in the same vein, it's just like, you know. If, if he sees your request and doesn't, you know, acknowledge it, don't get pissy, you know, 
especially for those that have seen this video. But also, I'm well, going to people, if you want to be my friend on Facebook, have something on Facebook that lets me know why you want to be my friend. Some if, if you're so closeted, you can't have any place on there. I'm pagan, or I mean, I don't care. Just type me a little message someplace on your page. Hey, Eric, I think you're hot. Anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. I, I'll tell you, it's like I do, I, I don't collect friends. So yeah. if I go on and I see, I, this happens so often, I'll go on and some of them are obvious, you know, like some Russian thing or something, you know, yeah. obvious. Yeah. But some of them I just don't know, but I'll pull up a, you know, oh, somebody sent me a friend request. I'll go and look at this person and there is, will be literally nothing on their page. Mm -hmm. I have no idea if this is even a real person. So anything like under religion, put pagan, heathen, whatever you are, Wiccan, or, you know, or put a picture of you up there with a big old pentagram on something. So mm -hmm. I know that we connect in some way. Uh, and I actually did a post on this like just very recently and I, I added a little addendum and it's like, I really, I'm not picky anything. You think I'm cute, you're pagan, you read one of my books, anything at all, mm -hmm. so I know why. Um, but I think a lot of times that people don't, especially people who are semi-public figures, if we're not picking you up when you send in a friend request, it's probably because we don't know if you're even real or not. Mm -hmm. I have something on your Facebook thing. If they, if, if mm -hmm. don't know you personally, I need to know you're real. And also for those of you that will see this on YouTube and stuff, go to Amazon and type in Alaric Albertson, A-L-B-E-R-T-S-S-O-N. And his books are there. If you're interested, please buy the man's book. That lady that commented on the video saying, I have his books and they are the bomb. She evidently got it from one of her booksellers or Amazon and took the time to read it because that's good. I'm trying. I've got some some uh, financial things that I don't really want to go over. But eventually I want to get the last two. You say the first book that you wrote is not in print anymore, right? I'm sure the other two are because I have seen them. Now, the Travis the Middle Earth is not currently in print, but the other two still are. Um, also, uh, while you're here, could you give the people the uh, website, Addy, for your uh, personal website? Oh, it's really difficult. It's alericalbertson.com. <laughs> and, and he's got things there for the book and a little bit of a background about, you know, the situation and stuff. And that's another way to find them, like the, you know, the deal with the way that I did that with Dr. Buckland. Uh, the funny thing, when I did the interview with him, he goes, it was sad. I couldn't get raybuckland.com because somebody else beat me to it. <laughs> so evidently, there's another Ray Buckland, Raymond Buckland out there. But when he tried, so he had to go through another route to get his own website. And then eventually, you know, was working through Wiser and, and Willen and such. He, I think he ended up getting a better one. And also another thing is for those of you that are out there, uh, you know, in the East Coast and things, if you get a chance, uh, I would love to go there, but I don't know if I'll ever be out in that area. But evidently, I don't know the exact location, but there is a Buckland Museum of Witchcraft. 
And they, they're, matter of fact, the channel, there is a YouTube channel called Buckland Museum of Witchcraft. And they've done interviews and things, and they show some of the memorabilia that they've collected from Dr. Buckland, some things on CX Wicca. And they've done interviews with Jason Mankey and other people and stuff like that. So you can check that out. And so I just want to say thank you for doing this, Alaric. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And we're going to have more interviews over time. We're going to keep doing uh, as uh, Raven Temple comes together a little bit more. We're going to talk about ritual and things. And we're going to get back to uh, the uh, Big Blue in a year. We're going to go chapter by chapter, and that's going to be out on the channel, and that's a apaganperspective.com. Check out Alaric, and just be safe if you do get out into the world for midsummer and through the, all the upcoming holidays and stuff. And with that, also, what I got to do after we get through here is I've got to uh, get stuff together for Yule, or not Yule, for midsummer and things like that. So more than likely... What I'm going to do is I've got some little fancy things I want to do to uh, edit this and get it ready for putting up on to uh, the YouTube. And when I get it together and stuff just before I once it comes live, I will give you the link to it, Alaric, so you can absolutely uh, share it with your friends and things like that. And having said that, I am Reverend Serenus Tree Walker of the Order of Standing Oak and Raven Temple of CX Wicca. And we're going to say blessed midsummer to everybody and we will see you next time if you enjoyed the video please join me on my page a pagan perspective on patreon thank you like comment and subscribe have a great day